0: So growing up in church, I always thought the pastoral prayer was called that because the pastor did it, but it's not. It's a pastoral prayer because it's about the pastoral, the family, the, the flocky kind of needs of the church. And so when we pray, it's not me praying for you. It's us praying to the Lord together for the things that are on our heart so what I'm going to do is just um, go through a few categories and pray for the world, for our nation, for our local church. There's a few things that I have that I know about that I will pray for, but there's lots more that you know about far better than I, and I want you to pray for those as well. And so I'll pause, and you can either privately or just speak out one word or a name or something that fits in that category, and then I'll cue us all together by saying, Lord, in your mercy, And we'll all say, hear our prayer. So can we practice that? Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Awesome. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God who does not stand far off. Um, You're not a God we have to beg to hear us. You're not an absentee dad. You're a God who is very present, very real, very much understands the situations that we're going through on a daily basis. So, Father, the stuff we bring to you right now is not stuff that you're unfamiliar with, But it's stuff we need your peace on. These are areas in our life that we're worried and troubled, that we want to see you at work, and we don't quite see it yet. And so, Father, we pray that during this prayer time, you will give us eyes to see your care and concern in these issues that we raise. Father, we pray for our world. We lift up this world that's very much still a world of trouble. There are many places in turmoil. There is bloodshed and loss and devastation wreaking havoc among the around the globe. So Lord, we lift up places in our world that are in desperate need of peace. Lord we lift up the Ukraine. And as the purposes ask us to pray, we pray for a lasting peace there. We pray for an end of the civil war in the eastern part of the country and even a return of the Crimea back to Ukraine. Lord, we pray for the church in Ukraine, for all true believers in you to find this time a new spirit of unity. That um, across denominational divisions, there would be a unity around the gospel that becomes prevalent in Ukraine. And because of that unity, your gospel would go forth into the whole region of Eastern Europe and into the Baltic. Lord, we pray for the purposes. We pray for rest for them. We pray that this summer is a time of um, just their family being able to reconnect, for them to be able to set aside the daily um, dilemmas of ministry and be able to rest in your gospel. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Lord, we pray for our own nation and we pray for our leaders, for those that have been elected to national office, and we lift them up to you. Lord, we pray for the divisions that rend us as enemies in our own country, and we pray, Lord, for peace and we pray for understanding and cooperation. We pray, Father, for your church to be faithful to her calling here in this place. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Lord, we pray for this church, for Lake Oconee, Presbyterian, and we pray, Father, for your peace and mercy here. We pray for this congregation as she seeks a new pastor, that in this time of uneasiness and questioning and fear and trepidation and excitement, that you would speak clearly and you would lead this church to the right pastor who would shepherd this flock faithfully. Lord, we pray for Ginger Butts as she is undergoing liver transplant right now. We pray right now that your spirit would guide the doctors as they undergo this difficult surgery and that she would have um, recovery of health and this would be a a great... um, liberating thing for her. Lord, thank you for the skill of the physicians and the times in which we live that such things are possible. But we know all healing comes from you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Father, we know that you do hear our prayers. You are gracious and compassionate. You're quick to come to those in need. And, Lord, we are people who are needy of your grace. Thank you for filling us with it and for encouraging us with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I just want to say thanks, first of all, for allowing me to be here today. Uh, We're visiting family, as you know, and Al and Emma Anderson's son-in-law. And we uh, have come here from Salt Lake City, Utah, where I pastor a Presbyterian church in downtown Salt Lake City. As you can imagine, there aren't many Protestants in Salt Lake City, Utah. And so, um, you know, it's always interesting that um, when you come back to a place where Christianity has had had much more of an influence, it's palpable. It's encouraging. It's a good time for us to sort of step out of our mission field of Utah and here to be encouraged by you. And I thank you for the opportunity to be here at this church. Christians in Utah are a minority. We, uh, of all those that would affirm the Nicene Creed that we just recited a few minutes ago, comprise less than 10% of the population. So we're very much a minority. In fact, uh, when I tell people or I meet people and they ask me what I do, and I say I'm a Presbyterian minister, I I usually don't say that anymore. I say I'm a pastor or a minister because Presbyterian just throws people off terribly. I had one guy tell me, when you say that word Presbyterian... I have nothing in my head that corresponds to it. It's like you just spoke a foreign language. What the heck does that mean? Which is uh, both a challenge as well as an exciting thing to get to explain to somebody what a Presbyterian is. Maybe you all should try that sometime. Have to distill it down to the elevator conversation about what is a Presbyterian. Hopefully it means it's about the gospel. And that's what we're here to talk about today is a little bit about what the gospel is, but one of the things that's interesting about living in such a place where the gospel has not had a tremendous amount of influence is the, um, is the idea of trying to build a church. Uh, most of us think, well, the way you build a church is you just do lots of good churchy things. You know, you, you have good Sunday school programs, you have stuff for the kids, you have decent music, okay preaching, as long as it's short. Somebody told me that, right? long as it's short. You can build a church if you have all those sort of elements, But one of the things that took me a long time, we've been there 14 years, but it took me a long time, probably not until about seven years ago, did I begin to realize people are not waking up on Sunday morning looking for a good church. In my context, uh, the biggest growth in religious identity is um, former, former Mormon, former Christian, former something else that everybody is sort of on this road to becoming nothing. Sort of none is the biggest growth uh, category of people, religious identity in downtown Salt Lake City. None. So when nobody is looking for a good church, how do you be a pastor? What do you do? How do you go about this enterprise of building a church, seeing it thrive, seeing it grow? Well, you know, it's interesting that um, it seems like the Bible has some things to say about that, fortunately. Uh, Oftentimes our biggest questions in life, the Bible has something to say about, and it's always a good place to go start, figuring out, like, well, what does the Bible say about building a church in a place where, you know, there's not a lot of Christians? Because it seemed like it happened before. I read the book of Acts. You know, there were none. There were 120 in the upper room, and suddenly in 300 years – we're writing a creed for the entire Roman world. How does that happen? What 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 do you do to get that going? And so a passage of scripture kept coming back to me that you know I'd probably shared or preached on at missions conferences probably here 14 years ago that had some instruction and encouragement about what does it mean to live in a secularizing culture in a way that's building the church genuinely. And it's a passage of scripture that's very familiar, you've all heard about it, but I hopefully will bring out a few things that'll help you understand our mission and maybe the folks in Ukraine as well as your own in ways that'll be helpful for all of us to move hopefully forward into this new world we're all living in. And so it's a passage that um you're familiar with, Matthew chapter 9, 35-38. And I'm going to read it, just make a few observations. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. A couple of things. One, it, it, this passage is very explicit about how Jesus went about his ministry, right? It's very clear, sort of step by step. He, um, he went throughout all their cities. He taught in their synagogues, proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and he healed people. So Jesus has this pattern of ministry that Matthew is commenting on that was descriptive of everywhere he went. He did these same sort of disciplines. He would go, he would teach, he would proclaim, and he would heal. He would go, he would teach, he would proclaim, and he would heal. That was sort of the method that Jesus went about. And so it was interesting there, he's teaching in the synagogues, the place where there are already people of God. People who are wanting to understand who God is, wanting to follow his ways, wanting to read the scriptures, wanting to follow him. So he begins there. He doesn't ignore the people of God. He begins there. But he doesn't stop there. So for us, I couldn't just, okay, great, I'm not going to preach every week. We're not going to have music. We're not going to have children. No, we still do all that stuff. We still strive to do it well. You don't stop it. But there are other things that Jesus does other than just teaching in their synagogues. He proclaims the good news of the kingdom broadly. He opens up good news of the kingdom of God. One of the things that I've seen in Salt Lake with people that are formers is the reason they're former is because they don't find good news in the church they grew up in, whatever background it was. They're discouraged. They're disheartened. They felt bored they felt like there was a sense of oppression and judgment and condemnation, which usually became the seed for them to become former that. People are looking for good news. And Jesus is proclaiming good news broadly outside to the people of God, but also broadly to people all around. There is good news. And then he heals people. He heals their diseases. You know, we read through the Gospels if you're even just glancingly familiar with the new testament jesus has a big healing ministry so much so he also often has to run away and hide because people are coming constantly to be healed physically but also emotionally and spiritually they're hungry and they're coming to somebody who can meet their need and then um, verse 36 says something i think that's the most striking part of this passage he sees the crowd that they're harassed and helpless. And he has compassion on them. Harassed and helpless. So his view of the crowds of people that are following him, he summarizes that by saying they're harassed and they're helpless. There's a great parallel here to the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is beaten and bruised is the adjective that's being used in that story. It's almost a similar Wordplay going on to this harassed and helpless, they're beaten and bruised. Jesus' attitude, the way he perceives the people around that are being oppressed, that are suffering poverty, that are undergoing all kinds of physical, spiritual maladies, they're beaten and bruised. They're harassed and they're helpless. And because of that condition, he has compassion on them. He is moved. Uh, the word here is not just a simple pity. You know, it's not like you see something difficult on the television news and you have sort of this heartstring of pity. That's not what's going on here. There is a deep, visceral, elemental movement of compassion for these people. He's not observing them as an outsider, cataloging their problems. He is moved in the seat of his being their need. Other times this word is used is um, when people are in pain or sickness. The widows that he raises their children, he has compassion on them for those. The crowds who are hungry, he has compassion. He's moved for them. For the lepers, when he sees their loneliness and isolation, he's moved to work on their behalf. And here, where he sees people without good leaders, People who have been disenfranchised, who have been abused, who both their spiritual and political overlords have failed them. He is moved with compassion from the depths of his being to do something. Now, why is that interesting? Jesus is God. God has compassion. Yeah, 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 yeah. Move on. What's striking about this is in contrast to the religious era in which Jesus is operating. As you know, one of the key conflicts Jesus always has in his ministry is with the sort of leading group of religious leaders who are kind of clumped together in a word we call the Pharisees. And they were great people. They were moral people. They were people that paid their taxes. They were people who showed up, put the chairs out, made things run. Their problem wasn't that they were not good people. The problem was is their attitude towards God and the crowds. Their attitude was the way to be holy is we separate ourselves from those unholy people. We need to protect. We need to hide behind walls. We need to throw up the ramparts. We need to protect what's good and holy in here. Because those people are going to creep in and steal it from us. And here, Jesus is having compassion on those broken, messy people. The quote I came across was Self righteousness is the seductive notion that we are well and the world is a mess. Self righteousness is the seductive notion that we are well. And the world is a mess. What Jesus is saying is, all you people are a mess. We are all a mess. We are all in need of God's compassion. If he is not deeply moved at the core of his being, we are all in trouble regardless of how good you are. Now what is... Again, to me, doubly striking. Jesus is God. It's one of the things we just said in the Nicene Creed. the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all coequally God. The Father is God. Jesus is God. Holy Spirit is God. We just said that. We just said we believed it. Here is God. When He shows up, revealing what His character is. His character is compassion, mercy, kindness, grace. And here, um, Jesus is the servant. He is the one who steps in. He has compassion on the crowds. And then he tells his disciples these funny things. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful. I, I can just imagine Jesus' disciples, because I feel like I'm, I'm Peter most of the time anyway. You know, I look around Salt Lake and I go, disciples, where? There aren't many disciples here, Jesus. Where is this passage? The first century was not much different than ours. They were saying the same thing. Harvest, this is a barren wasteland. What are you talking about harvest? Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. People in need of compassion are always plentiful. I don't want to show compassion. Well, then your harvest is going to be pretty meager. But those who desire the mercy of God are everywhere. They're replete. There's no human being alive anywhere that is not looking for the good news of a compassionate God who actually steps into the mess of our lives and brings his love and change and healing power. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. People are ready for the love of God and um, they're looking for it. But the thing that Jesus is interesting here is he's saying, okay, I'm going to show you this. I'm going to make it work. No, he's saying, I'm about to turn over something to you. Matthew's writing this account, right? After the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's ascended to heaven, left with the people that were his followers to sort of guide this nascent church into the Roman Empire. And these words are ringing here, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We're the few. Jesus has left us with a task here. How do we go about that? The first century, the 21st century, is looking for the same thing. The miracle that our world needs is a church that actually acts out what it believes The miracle that our world needs is a church who actually acts out what it says we believe. We say we believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We say we believe in a God of compassion who at his essence is self-sacrificing love on a cross. We say we believe these things. The miracle that will open up the doors of the harvest is for us to actually do those things that Jesus did. We're called Christians because we follow him. Somebody asked me, are you preaching a new sermon? I'm like, sort of, kind of. But oh, they're like, oh, you have like this file. Well, yeah, I do. And so I, I'm pulling this out of a file we did this past fall called Following Jesus. And so this whole fall we were talking about the idea of what does it mean to follow Jesus today? Not just sort of mythical, but today. What does it mean to follow him? Well, to follow means we actually follow Jesus. We do what He does. His Spirit comes and empowers us to actually walk a similar path that He has walked. Matthew is recording the words and the descriptions of Jesus' ministry because they are becoming normative for the church that's asking the same questions your church and my church are asking. How do we live in a world like ours, faithful to Scripture, when nobody's just waking up wanting to go to church? We teach... In the synagogues, we start with the people of God. We proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. We show people the power of God. We pray. We show compassion. These are the methodologies of following Jesus as a church. We emulate what we love. And if we love Christ, we'll lead with his compassion. Philippians 2 is a passage um, that I've looked at a lot. Last year I was on sabbatical. I read a book about it. this is just one passage and it really blew my mind. One of the summaries of what it said here is um, that Christ lays aside all the prerogatives of deity in order to serve. That the only thing he is not stripped of is his love, his self-sacrificing love. On the cross he has no, he has no power. He's laid it aside. He has no followers. They've all abandoned him. He has no authority. He has no clothing. He has no physical strength. The only thing Jesus has at the cross is an unrelenting, self-sacrificing love. The thief on the cross beside him. Can I go with you? Yeah, you're in paradise. To those persecuting him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What flows out of Jesus on the cross is the essence of what God is. He is self-sacrificing love. The one thing the church has to have to thrive, to grow in any age is an attitude of self-sacrificing love. This is deeply encouraging for those of us who are weak. You know, not many of us are strong, it sounds very scriptural but we don't like to believe that because we're modern people. We like to think we're strong. We're very weak. We're very flawed. But what we have on our side is the ability to serve. We can serve anybody. We can love anybody. Nobody's lining up to serve people around you. Have you noticed that? The only reason they're lining up to maybe serve them is to to liberate them from some cash in their pocket. But nobody is signing up for your friends, your family, your neighbors, the folks you encounter day by day to actually serve them, to care about their souls, to care about their heart, to show compassion for them. You are the only ones. Let me just speak for a moment to those of you who are here dragged by grandparents on a holiday weekend to come to church. Got to go to church. Okay, Grandma, I'll go to church. Or your wife. Or your cousin. Or your third great Sunday school teacher. I don't know why you're here. But let me just talk to you. You're probably former something. You probably had some bad experience with church, which is why you're not here on a regular basis. Do you see this Jesus? This is the Jesus... That you always hoped really existed, he does really exist. He is good and he is powerful. But more than those things, he loves you, he has compassion, he steps in, he understands why you do what you do, he knows your loneliness, he knows your deep problem with your parents. He knows whatever it is that you're struggling with and He doesn't judge you. He has compassion on you. Would you simply just turn to Him and say, I need you? Look, the only entrance fee for the kingdom of God is need. All you need is need. All you need to do is just say, I'm needy. And it comes to you. He's already moved to you. All you have to do is just simply say, yes, yes. Finally, I need you. How do we begin to work this out? This idea of teaching, proclaiming, healing, compassion, and prayer. It was interesting, the first part of the service, Russ and I had communicated about what I was preaching on and what the service was going to be about. But there was a lot about prayer, if you didn't notice, in the first part of the service. Because prayer is us, as the people of God, saying, we're need. We need you. Would you please come? Would you please help us? Compassion is birthed in prayer. We do not have compassion for ourselves, for our spouses, for our children, for our neighbors, unless we're praying, unless we're opening ourselves to say, I am in need. When you open yourself to saying, I am in need to God, you begin to experience compassion. Personally, when you experience passion, compassion personally, you begin to give it to other people around you. You stop giving condemnation and the finger pointing and the, well, if you hadn't been out so late kind of lectures. You begin to step beneath those actions to compassion. Why are they doing what they're doing? Why are these people struggling? how can I speak the kingdom of God, the glory of Christ, the the self-sacrificing love to these people? And often those people are the people closest to you that most need compassion. Your closest relationships, your children, your grandchildren, your wives, your husbands, your sons and daughters, are the people who need to experience your compassion in order to understand there is a compassionate God behind that compassion. The people you least understand are those you're called foremost to show compassion to. The people you least understand. There are lots of people in this world that I don't understand. I don't understand why they do what they do. I don't understand the lives they lead. I don't understand the holes they dig for themselves. And it's easy to condemn. It's easy to slip into self-righteousness on my part which is the seductive notion that we are well and the world is a mess. It's a seductive notion. I'm okay because those people are such a mess. When I begin to believe and act like this, when we believe and act like this as a church, it changes our stance. It doesn't change what we do, but it changes our whole attitude of the way we reach out to other people. Just a Utah illustration to conclude here with. Um, one of the, your missionaries that you support is a man named Mark Peach. Mark Peach uh, was part of our church, and we sent him out to plant another church in downtown Salt Lake City, just literally blocks away from where we meet. And one of the peoples that I don't understand in our city are those that are very angry, very outside of the kingdom of God, very um, is viscerally hurt by their upbringing and those people all congregate in Salt Lake City in coffee shops and bars and restaurants and neighborhoods that are part of our our city and Mark sort of began to take these ideas and cook them together in a creative way and created a church called City Presbyterian and here's their motto A church that strives to make public the life-changing love of Christ. A church that seeks to make public the life-changing love of Christ. And the way they make public is Mark started his church in a coffee shop during regular hours. No walls. No building. Just doing what we're doing right here in the middle of a coffee shop as business is happening. Serving the Lord's table. You know, preaching a short message, doing the liturgy, the whole deal, the whole nine yards. People watched what Mark was doing. Mark also hung out at those coffee shops, got to know these people, he knew their stories, he showed compassion. Mark's the most compassionate man I have, I've ever met. He is a guy who you trust. So Mark has built this incredible web of people and relationships in this neighborhood of Salt Lake called Lower Ninth. And because it's, those white relationships are so strong, the, the community board that's part of that neighborhood came to Mark a couple of months ago and said, hey, we're building this new community center. What kind of building do you need? Because when we build this new building, we want to make sure there's room in it for you. Now, I've never met a church planner, a pastor, their city, basically equivalent to their city council, came and said, you're so vital to this neighborhood, we need to make sure you stay here. What do you need? Why are they doing that? Because people are hungry for good news. They want to know that God really cares for them. That somebody has compassion. that is looking beyond the surface of the things that they were judged on to the heart of who they are as people created in the image of God, called to know Him. Somebody who's going to stick with them, who's going to persevere, he's going to say, there are so no walls of my church that I don't even have a church, I'm just going to do it out in the public, so you can watch. I tell you, in a culture like ours, that was sold on the idea of secrecy, and hiding, and perfection, what Mark is doing is this kind of gospel work. The same kind of gospel work we're all called to to teach, to proclaim, to show the power of God, to have compassion, and to pray. That's what you're called to as you seek a new pastor. As you seek to be a church that's here not just for you, but for your children, your grandchildren, for the people that aren't here today. You need this same sort of encouragement. How do we teach the gospel? How do we proclaim the good news? How do we show the healing power of God? How do we pray? But foremost, how do we give give in practical ways evidence of God's compassion to this place? Let's pray. Father, we are weak. We need you. You are awesome in power and splendor. But yet you laid aside all prerogatives of divinity and became a human. And not just any human, but one who was stripped of all power, hung on a cross, and yet in his dying breath shows us self-sacrificing love. Lord, empower us to follow him. To lead into serving. To show compassion on one another and those around us. In Christ's name. Amen. Now and ever shall be end. Amen Amen In your insert, uh, there's a prayer for ministry or outreach that we're going to pray together if you'll join with me. It's just at the bottom of the sermon notes there on the insert. Let us pray. O God, who has made all the peoples of the earth and who sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near, grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you, Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, uh, the benediction counts as the blessing for the picnic, just FYI. So. You don't have to go mingle around and wait. You can go just right away. So, good news. Hear now God's good word, his benediction to us from the book of First Peter. But now you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the very people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received His full and rich mercy. Go in peace. Amen.